Hey guys, welcome to Thrive Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Colin Zhu, and thank you so much for listening on. You could have been anywhere in the world and you decided to spend just a few moments of your precious time and we greatly appreciate it. Here on the podcast, we talk about three things, living a plant-powered lifestyle and enhancing emotional resilience and creating a thriving mindset. And I interview a range of passionate guests such as physicians, dietitians, coaches, entrepreneurs, and many more. And please join me as I deliver these engaging, informative, and high-valued conversations for you. And just remember, the first five seasons of the Thrive Bites podcast can now be found in the new The Chef Doc app, available in your Apple Store and Google Play stores. So what are you waiting for? Come on inside. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Thrive Eyes Podcast. I've had a wonderful, wonderful, you know, guests, you know, that I just did that you're going to um, appreciate and love. So the next episode is with Dr. Mahima, and uh, she is a triple board certified physician, including but not limited to in a chronology and lifestyle medicine. And this episode is really special because we dive deep into diabetes. We talk about what it means to be in remission right? To live a life without, you know, diabetes using lifestyle medicine. What are the light bulb moments that she's had in order for her to, you know, transition to this uh, stage in her career? And what does it mean to have a personal and professional support system? You don't want to miss this and we'll see you guys inside. Okay, guys. Well, welcome to another episode of Thrive Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Colin Zhu. And thank you so much for being here with us. You could have been anywhere in the world and you decided to share your precious moments with us, and we greatly appreciate it. So our next guest for today, I am thrilled to introduce Dr. Mahima Golati. She is a triple board certified physician in endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolism, as well as internal medicine, as well as lifestyle medicine. She is the medical director of lifestyle medicine at Mental Sex Health, and she's also tasked with creating the strategic uh, vision, formulation, and the tactical implementation for this program. Sounds very, very nice. And she loves combining all these different pillars to care for her chronic patient population. She's also the senior staff uh, attending for the endocrinology department, which, you know, encompasses a whole host of conditions, not just diabetes, but also things like various hormonal disorders, pancreas, thyroid, adrenals, pituitary, uh, you name it, she uh, addresses it um, as well. And she's also the Associate Professor of Medical Sciences at French H. Netter, Ooh, <laughs> our, our esteemed anonymous uh, School of Medicine at Quinnipiac University. So we can spend all day long, and she's also the Board of Directors of American College of Lifestyle Medicine. We can spend all day long talking about her, but without further ado, please welcome Dr. Mahima. Hello. <laughs> Hi there. That was so kind of you, Dr. Zhu. I really am so grateful and so honored to be here on this platform with you. Thank you so much for your kind introduction. You were very gracious and it is my real pleasure to be here. Well, the pleasure is all mine. I can't wait to dive deep. Diabetes obviously is a you know, huge topic, you know, pun intended, right? And no pun intended, right? <laughs> but before we get into the nitty, nitty gritty, I love talking about the origin story, the super heroine origin story of my guests and how they got from point A to point B. 
you know, I was, uh, we were talking a little bit offline, you know, I read this wonderful article about you and you had this beautiful, you know, light bulb moment. And I definitely want you to share that. So if you can share with the audience, you know, how did you go, you know, from a super specialist to a super, super, to the nth power, you know, specialist, you know, involving lifestyle medicine, how did you make that transition for yourself? So thank you for asking me my own story, actually. Uh, and thank you so much for saying those kind words. That really um, means so much to me. That's very special to me. I actually had hit kind of a rock bottom professionally, uh, even though I was doing very well from the external viewpoint. Right after the birth of my second child, you know, I had gone back to work part-time because he was preterm. I had no idea why he was preterm. He was uh, more than a month preterm. And we spent uh, 23 days, close to a month in the uh, NICU, the, you know, the neonatal ICU. And uh, looking back, I feel like there were things with my lifestyle that I could have done better to have a healthier pregnancy, even though I did not have, you know, things like gestational diabetes or preeclampsia, etc. But there were problems with my diet, with my sleep, with my stress management, etc. So uh, anyhow, this was a time when I needed to go back to work part time. And I just couldn't figure out the meaning or the purpose of my being there with my patients, you know, um, to give your audience a little bit of perspective on an endocrinologist's life, you know, uh, in our country, we have uh, a prevalence of diabetes that's uh, almost 12%. So uh, that's a huge, huge prevalence of diabetes. Uh, but, you know, a very, very small fraction of those patients with diabetes will actually get to see an endocrinologist. That's because there's just very few of us. There's not enough trained endocrinologists. There's just not enough uh, fellowships that train people in endocrinology. So, you know, what happens is uh, typically people with diabetes are managed with their family physicians or their pediatricians. And by the time they make it to an endocrinologist, they have already had diabetes for years, sometimes decades. And they are already, you know, facing a lot of complications like uh, retinopathy which is eye damage or you know you know they've already had amputations which is uh, severe nerve damage leading to you know basically severe infections in the foot etc right or they've had kidney damage etc they've had heart attacks etc so they come to us in what you could call end stage diabetes and you know they've failed multiple medications and then their uh, family physicians are like okay now you need to see a specialist because you need to start insulin so that was the profile of patients who came to us and, you know, like you mentioned, uh, even for other hormonal disorders like thyroid conditions, again, thyroid conditions are extremely common, especially uh, these days. You know, uh, over the last two decades, the prevalence of uh, thyroid disorders has uh, really skyrocketed. Um, and so uh, people really struggle. You know, they take levothyroxine or Synthroid or they're taking Armour Thyroid. And they still feel symptomatic, even if their TSH is normal. And that's when they're family physicians or primary care physicians send them to an endocrinologist if you're struggling with, you know, this formulation of thyroid or that formulation of thyroid. So again, they get to see us when they've already had thyroid conditions for a good amount of time. So we got the most complicated patients. And, you know, when people come to us with something that is, uh, you know, in its disease stage, severe, right, you, you're treating severe disease, you also want to give them a sort of a therapy which is equally, you know, not severe, but equally high intensity. Hmm. You are going to treat something that is, uh, you know, sort of an upgrade on pathology with the best of therapy. And I wasn't doing that. Hmm. I would not, no, no endocrinologists were being trained to do that. 
You know, so if somebody has to be started on insulin for type 2 diabetes, now thankfully we are questioning the merit of type, you know, insulin and type 2 diabetes, and we're realizing that there are so many other things we can do before we give people insulin, right? Thanks to, you know, the newer, fancier uh, pharmacotherapy drugs that we have now. But, you know, by the time people are started on insulin and, you know, if we are not addressing the elephant in the room, which is their lifestyle, if we are not telling them to, you know, eat real food and, you know, they're on the diet that they've always been on, but we give them, you know, 50 units of insulin or 60 units of insulin. And every time they come to us, all that I do is, okay, let's increase this insulin. Let's put you on this insulin before lunch, dinner, and, you know, before breakfast. But I don't do anything to, you know, make them move more or make them Mm -hmm. eat differently or make them sleep better or make them manage their stress better. Then the therapy I'm giving is ineffective, really, Mm -hmm. or, you know, very partially effective, right? And so I had started to figure that out, that, you know, I'm not doing the best I can. Am I bringing my best treatments to the table? I was not. And there was this, uh, you know, nagging dissatisfaction in my heart. Mm. Uh, at the same time, there was also this, you know, undercurrent of, you know, being productive as a physician, which I think mm-hmm. a lot of our physicians know about, you know, uh, being, uh, you know, producing a certain number of relative value units or RVUs mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and seeing a certain number of patients every hour, right? So there were all these different conversations going on in my head. Am I, am I doing the best therapy I can? Am I being the most productive I can? Am I really making the best use of my time, you know, getting the most value out of the amount of minutes I spend in a patient's room? And I'm like, okay, you know, I need more enlightenment. I, I, there's something missing in my uh, learning. Mm-hmm, it's not, mm-hmm. you know, there is definitely a missing piece of the puzzle, right? So I came across on social media, I think it was on Facebook, this um, uh, Harvard conference for women physician leaders. Mm. So I knew I was a, a you know physician mom. I didn't think of myself as a physician leader back in those times. This was 2016 or 2017. Because mm-hmm. I'm working part time and I'm just I feel like I'm a normal uh, run of the mill physician. But anyhow, I you know took the chance to go. My husband encouraged me. He's a physician himself. And he said, you should go out of your comfort zone. You know, this may not be the kind of thing you've ever done, but you should look, look it up and go there. And it's mm. in Boston, which is close to me. So I went there. And, you know, I met the most brilliant pioneering physicians there. And one of the people I saw there was Dr. Beth Freires. Mm-hmm. Who, you know, like you and I, uh, she's uh, been on the board of directors at the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and she's now the president. And she was doing a session on lifestyle medicine, and she was very happy. She was hula hooping as she's teaching. All <laughs> there was a break, breakout session, and she's hula hooping in that in that breakout session. Uh, with, with go go back to go back two seconds ago. You said that she was very what? Happy. She was uh, very happy. Yeah, and that's happy. That's I'm going that? to. What's yeah, that? I'm going to tell you a little bit about that, that happiness part, because <laughs> that's, you know, critical to my story. So, you know, I saw that moment and then somebody tweeted about it. And, you know, I replied to her post and, you know, Dr. Freddy's was very gracious to interact on that tweet. Mm-hmm. And then I went back to Lifestyle Medicine Conference at Harvard, which was, I think, seven or eight months later, and I met her again. But coming back to that happy moment, right? Um, when I saw that picture, that picture stood out to me because this is a happy physician who's possibly, you know, maybe she wakes up in the morning and she is like, oh, I can't wait to go and, you know, do my work today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this looked like the opposite of me because Mm. I wasn't there in that stage of my career. I had gone there looking for a missing piece in the puzzle. I was looking for that sense of meaning and purpose. Mm -hmm. And here I see a physician, a woman physician, who's enjoying her work, who is happy at work. 
you know, she uh, was present in the moment, right? She's not looking at a computer, clicking away, whereas the people are talking to her, I don't know, the air around her. Mm. And so that, you know, picture is still stuck in my office to remind me what it means to have joy at work. Mm. Um, and then, you know, the fact, lifestyle medicine, those two words also were very kind of like, you know, sort of made the ground underneath me slip away, right? I'm like, lifestyle medicine? What, <laughs> what is that? that? What's that? What is that? Yeah, here I am. I am, you know, by that time, I think I had already been a fellow of the American College of Endocrine. And I am, uh, you know, board certified in internal medicine. And I've been treating diabetes and endocrine patients for over five years, seven years. I've never heard of lifestyle medicine. Never. What is that? During yeah, your school, training, that, nothing. No. And, you know, it wasn't mentioned in my uh, endocrine lectures. Uh, I had heard of preventive medicine. Mm-hmm. I had heard of integrative medicine. But lifestyle medicine was kind of a mysterious, curious term for me then. So I went back and I listened to her Harvard talk with her medical students on mm-hmm. YouTube. Mm-hmm. And then I went to the conference and I met her. And, you know, she had, you know, not just her, but the whole conference was really sort of a really groundbreaking experience for me. So that's how I came across lifestyle medicine. And, you know, thereafter, I became uh, the spokesperson for lifestyle medicine at my health system, which is Mm. Middlesex Health System in Middletown in Connecticut, where I live. People there were thankfully very interested in lifestyle medicine. I have colleagues here who are also board certified. So, you know, one of my colleagues said, uh, let's do grand rounds on it. Mm. And my chair of medicine uh, really was very heavily interested. And in fact, she uh, herself took the time out to go to that leadership conference at Harvard. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, sponsored me to go get board certified in lifestyle medicine. And she wanted me to bring that service line back to our health system. Mm. So, you know, over the years, then with the help of other colleagues, we had residents who were interested in kind of formalizing this as a track in family medicine residency. So long story short, we've built a complete service line. We have uh, multiple providers. We have not just physicians, but also, you know, physical therapists, dietitians, um, other healthcare professionals, including social workers and psychologists who uh, work with us as a team. And, you know, we've done numerous sort of uh, news media outlet mm-hmm. kind of blasts. We have created a referral system internally so that patients can be referred by different physicians, you know, by your GI doctor, by your PCP to come in CS at Lifestyle Medicine Program. And, you know, it, it happened over a period of time. We actually did, you know, our biggest annual symposium is supposed to be this whole day event. It's actually the whole morning mm. session of three or four talks. And we invited Dr. Freire's as our keynote there uh, and a few other, you know, renowned speakers nationally to come and talk with us about lifestyle medicine. So over the past, I think now it's been five or six years that I was able to really re-infuse my professional life with the sense of meaning and purpose that I had gone looking for, the missing piece in the puzzle, Mm -hmm. uh, which was, you know, now if a patient comes to me and they may come to me for something that they're not even, uh, they may not have any kind of, you know, lifestyle issues at all, they might come to me for a thyroid nodule or an adrenal nodule, which, you know, adrenal nodules may or may not be related to your lifestyle, but they still have to fill out a questionnaire. How many vegetables are they eating in a day? Yeah. Because that's like part of the intake form and how many, you know, servings of, let's say, whole grains are you eating in a day, etc. So I think this was the missing piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's awesome. I think there's a lot to tease out from that that you know portion of it that you shared, and I appreciate you sharing. The biggest takeaways that I got was you know your husband. You went to get the information. You brought it back. Your healthcare system was very supportive, right? Your colleagues, your peer. They wanted you to start a program. These are so instrumental. What you just said, I've had, I've heard of other stories where their spouse or partner was skeptical. Right? Mm-hmm. They, you know, just didn't know what it is. Oh, you can try it if you want. Right? Their system and backing and support system, you know, wasn't there for them. So there's certain key things that happen in life. However, it happens when manifested really, really sets you on a exponential trajectory. And if you can imagine for a second, if you didn't have that support system, would you have been here, right? Oh my God, you are so uh, wise, Colin. Dr. Shiv, you're amazingly (laughs) wise. I I cannot believe how amazingly wise you are. You're absolutely correct. If I had not had the support of, first of all, my husband, who's been my rock, Mm. you know, whether I wanted to do plant-based diet, or, you know, kind of go to this conference, which I, I actually was completely skeptical. He's the one who said, mm-hmm. oh, if you never go outside of endocrinology and, you know, outside of your comfort zone, how yeah. do you learn something that, you know, you possibly will benefit from? So he has been the biggest mentor that I have ever had. Yeah. Uh, and you're absolutely correct. You know, I know we're going to talk about diabetes remission down in this podcast. And one of the biggest success predictors for people to go into type 2 diabetes remission and stay in remission was spousal support. In fact, yeah. you know, the patients who lost weight and stayed in remission, their spouses also lost substantial amounts of weight. Instrumental. Yeah. Instrumental. Yeah. So it is, it's, you know, crazy how important social connections are. And then, you know, I have to give credit to my chair of medicine. She's no longer here at my health system. She left a few years ago, which mm-hmm. was a big loss to me. But Dr. Mm-hmm. Rachel Lovins, mm-hmm. if it wasn't for her and her uh, mentoring and I remember when we did the grand round, she like was so excited. Uh, she actually Facebooked on our health systems Aww. Facebook page. And she's like, oh, there's a grand rounds and they're serving plant-based breakfast, <laughs> uh, which, you know, our, it was so kind of our organizers. The person who coordinates the entire grand round, she's uh, our secretarial staff. Mm-hmm. She handmade uh, plant-based cookies. While mm. at that, and, you know, they never serve breakfast at grand rounds, mm. but they actually made sure that they do it for us. Mm. Um, so I had, you know, some the, the interest of the colleagues was really yeah. such an important piece of this yeah. story. That, that's what I took away from it was, you know, you the, the catalyst was, you know, you wanted to find purpose and joy and meaning behind the work that you do. You spent so much time, you went to school, you did residency, you did fellowship, you serve your patients for a number of years, but you still ended up at a roadblock. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure a lot of physicians or people that know of physicians and, and fellow healthcare professionals um, alike would know that it's a very long, arduous road. And mm-hmm. you know, to be able to cross that as and then still hit a roadblock can be very um you know, it could be, it can really weigh you down. Mm -hmm. And I, and that article that I referenced about you talks about burnout. And Mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, uh, people that I don't know, you know, physician burnout is a very real thing. It affects us all the time. There's also a really high number of physician suicide, you know, all these different wellness trends, especially post pandemic has never been more noteworthy. And so Mm -hmm. to be able, and I'm sure you can agree, lifestyle medicine is almost like that breath of fresh air. And what's great about it is that it could be applicable in mm-hmm. almost every specialty, 
right? Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, that's a hundred percent correct. I cannot think of any specialty. Can you that that would not you know like directly benefit? It's so inclusive. It's so inclusive. It is so you know, inclusive. and it, it doesn't is. shut anyone out. That's what I love it. It's foundational. Absolutely. It is. Absolutely. It is. Hey guys, we're going to be taking a short break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Hey guys, what's going on? This is Dr. Colin Zhu, aka The Chef Doc, and I just wanted to extend my gratitude and appreciation for you for listening to this episode. We are always looking ways to evolve and give back, and we also understand that a large part of our audiences are our fellow healthcare professionals. And so we've decided that we're going to create continuing medical education for our listeners. And it's not just for doctors. We've partnered with CME Phi to deliver continuing education for not just doctors, but also nurses, nurse practitioners, physicians, associates, pharmacists, dentists, dietitians, and dietetic technicians. This is just another way for you to be able to get continuing education while listening to our great episodes. So how does it work? Basically how it works is there will be a hyperlink provided in the show notes and you click on that and you're given a couple of reflective questions. And once you're done with that, then you are awarded one CE credit per episode. And so basically have at it, have fun, and also gain education as well at a nominal cost. And so thank you again for listening and following Thrybytes podcast, and we greatly appreciate it. And we'll see you on the next one. Welcome back to Thrive Bites. Let's get back to the interview. So let's dive deeper, you know, into the growing issues that we have. Give us some numbers in terms of, you know, where are we at with, let's just talk about type 2 diabetes, you know, in terms of incidence, prevalence, let's break out, break down what those words mean, you know, that are affecting uh, Americans. And how does lifestyle medicine play a role in that? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, diabetes, as uh, I'm sure there's not an audience member who has not heard of this or has not actually had uh, somebody that they know suffer from this. But it really is the scourge of the 21st or the 20th century, right? I, you know, when I present nationally, uh, there are some fun questions I kind of put out in order to uh, gauge and engage uh, audiences. So one of the things that I like to talk about is, you know, in 1980, the year 1980, mm-hmm. and uh, comparing that with the year 2014, which is 34 years down the road, right? How much has the prevalence of diabetes in the U.S. increased in those 34 years, less than four decades? I probably would say five times. Yeah, so you're very close, four folds in less than four decades. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, this is a somber statistic. There are two of them, actually. One is, so, you know, somebody who's got type 2 diabetes, how much less can they expect to live compared with somebody who does not have diabetes, according to CDC uh, data? And, you know, in numbers, you know, are they going to live 10 years less, five years less compared with somebody who doesn't suffer from diabetes? I would probably say eight plus. Yeah. So at age 50, five zero, if somebody has type 2 diabetes, they can expect to live six years less compared mm. to somebody who does not have diabetes. Now, this is there are two things. One is this is American data. And second, this is at the age of 50. Mm. So, you know, if somebody gets diabetes at the age of 20 or, you know, 18, 
or 40. This is not data for them. Mm-hmm. Their life expectancy might be much reduced by a matter of decades. Mm-hmm. You know, just getting diabetes cuts somebody's life short by that many number of years. And the other thing is, this is the U.S. data. You know, in the mm-hmm. U.S., we have sophisticated, you know, sort of healthcare technologies to save people if they come in with a pneumonia or with sepsis, you know, people can survive. But if you look globally, if you look worldwide, which is where diabetes is actually now multiplying, you know, if you look at the Middle East or South Asia or East Asia or, you know, the developing South, Mm. you are not going to have life expectancy shortened by six years. First of all, diabetes will start early, which it's already starting early. And the other is it's actually going to cut more years because they don't have access to fancy technologies. You know, right. If people get septic shock, they will die. They don't mm. survive that. So that's, again, another sort of sobering statistic. And I will not bore you with statistics, but the last one that comes to my mind is, you know, how many worldwide, how many percentage of diabetics die before the age of 70? So let's say, you know, all the diabetics that there are in the world, which right now, I think there are over 400 million diabetics in the world. How many of them can expect to die before the age of 70? And 70 is the age that has been defined by World Health Organization as uh, premature death. So if somebody dies before the age of 70, that's premature. They should not die that early. Mm. And how many of the type 2 diabetics living in the world can expect to die prematurely? Probably say upwards of a third. Yeah, 48%. So almost a half of the diabetics will not make it to 70th birthday. And so this is what diabetes really is. It is the plague, the 21st century plague, really. And, you know, we have to act Mm -hmm. because, you know, what I see is that diabetes is affecting kids and younger Mm -hmm. adults. You know, when I was a trainee, which was, you know, agreed it was two decades ago, but when I was a trainee, I had not seen diabetes in kids. I mean, type 2 diabetes. I'd seen type 1, right? Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. not type 2 diabetes in kids. And I did not see the tsunami of gestational diabetes. Now my clinic is like flooded with gestational diabetes. Yeah. And, you know, I think one in 10 pregnant women or maybe even more pregnant women can expect to get diabetes during their pregnancy now. When I was a trainee, it was a rarity to have a pregnant woman with diabetes. What do you think um, this exponential growth that you mentioned, uh, the fourfold since the 80s, what do you think contributes to that almost roller coaster ride mm-hmm. of that trajectory? You know, what has changed before, you know, the 80s? You know, what was implemented? What was what was modified? You know, can you share a little bit about that? Absolutely. I think it's our lifestyle. It's the, you know, sort of the intersection of lifestyle with culture. So, you know, when I talk about lifestyle, it's all the six pillars that, you know, hopefully we'll get the chance to talk about bit by bit. But it's our food, number one, you know, our food environment, the the modern industrial food environment, Mm -hmm. you know, our critical sleep deprivation pandemic. Mm -hmm. In the 1960s, uh, an average American adult slept eight hours at night. Now in the year 2010, an average American adult sleeps on an average, on an average 6.7 hours at night or at night, you know, you're obviously not talking about night shift workers, but 6.7 hours on an average. So we have shaved off 1.3 hours of sleep from an average adult's life. So that's another pandemic. It is our, you know, other substance addictions, whether that's alcohol Mm -hmm. or certain substances, but also processes, you know, social media addiction. And then last but not the least, our stress management and our relationships. Yeah. So all of these, uh, you know, these cultural lifestyle intera- intersection 
is what has led us to this moment. I think we should talk a little bit about the food environment now, you know, because, you know, that's mm-hmm. kind of the, the chunk of diabetes pathogenesis. And it's a fact that in the 1960s or even as late as 1980s, the average uh, person ate 300 calories less than what uh, the average person eats now. And mm-hmm. that's true across all continents, all ages, all sexes. Mm. So, you know, children, adults, you know, on an average, it might be true that people in the developed world are eating maybe 600 or 700 calories more than their counterparts did in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. That number may not have changed much in certain sections of Africa, right? But if you take a global average, 300 calories on an average per person, per capita, more. And a lot of this is industrialized food, ultra-processed food. Yeah. And not to mention, especially the pandemic that has highlighted this, you have food deserts, you have poor food access, you have socioeconomic, you know, disparities, which lead and correlate with health disparities, and so many different things jumble together, um, that we are now being more and more uh, aware of in terms of lifestyle medicine. So bringing it back, we talked about the pillars, what are you seeing in your clinic, you know, fast forwarding a little bit, right? What have you seen once you've uh, had some time to implement this through Mm -hmm. your programming? through the coursework, through, you know, your uh, patient population, what have you seen that has made you go, wow, this stuff really works. Mm -hmm. It's reinforcing, it's reaffirming. Let me Mm -hmm. keep going with this. As opposed to someone's, you know, listening to this and say, oh, it's just, you know, eating less and moving more, right? Mm -hmm. What would you say to that? Yeah. It's not uh, as simple as eating less and moving more, right? And you and I both know that. There have been several sort of aha moments since uh, I began lifestyle medicine. It has been a gift that keeps on giving, really. You know, now there are some patients who radically like transform themselves. I'll tell you a story, you know, because Mm -hmm. stories are always such a, you know, stories really kind of bring the message home better than, you know, data can or statistics can. Statistics are cold. So I had a patient in her early 60s who had, you know, BMI of over 50 and she was wheelchair bound because of knee arthritis. Now she had suffered from breast cancer in her early 40s and she had had type 2 diabetes for over a decade. She was already on insulin. Hmm. And she came to see me and she had the most supportive spouse. So she had a typical, you know, what we call a standard American diet in SAD. You know, she would eat microwaved entrees and boxed foods, cereals for breakfast, etc. Right. So typical food. And she attended, you know, shared medical appointments with us. So as you know, shared medical appointments are one modality which us lifestyle medicine providers can utilize in order to create this group where you can actually spend a lot of time. A lot of time, you know, because who has time in 15 or 20 minute appointments to tell each patient to eat better and to, you know, right. really kind of go down to the minutiae. Nobody has the time to do that. Mm-hmm. So shared medical appointments give you the luxury of time. And they also give you something which is critical, which we talked about in the beginning, which is the social support, your your circle of friends. So there are other patients with diabetes or cholesterol or blood pressure or you know, breast cancer or something else that all come to that that common place of learning. It's a community of learning. And there is this, you know, relatively luxuriant, unbridled time with the physician and also with our lifestyle medicine team, which in our case is a wonderful registered dietitian. I have to shout her out. Her name is Piper Tobler. So, you know, we cook something fun, which is, you know, we don't have a fancy kitchen. We have only a microwave. So Piper brought in her Nutribullet from home. 
Mm. And she decided to make a smoothie and she had a hidden ingredient, a secret ingredient in her smoothie. And the participants had to guess what it was. And, you know, she had bananas in there and maybe <laughs> the cocoa in there and, you know, almond butter or something else. But there was a hidden ingredient and none of the 10 patients who were there could guess what it was. Uh-huh. It was a cauliflower. Ah. Uh, we had hidden, I think, a half a sort of a flower of cauliflower, like that half vegetable in there, and nobody could taste it. So my patient, who, you know, I'm talking about, she drank that and loved that. And her husband commented, you know, if if we ate like that all the time, then we would not have half the diseases we have. And this is, uh, you know, right before the pandemic began. So that, I think, was a catalytic moment for both of them. And she never looked back after that. I love it. So she started not eating, you know, her typical diet and started eating real food. She started eating more vegetables now that she knew, you know, from hands-on experiential learning that vegetables can taste good, right? And so, you know, our job was to show, not tell. And we showed it to her and she saw it and she's a transformed woman and as is her husband and they took it up and, you know, within less than a year, she lost a huge amount of weight. She was off insulin. Mm-hmm. You said her BMI was over 50? Over 50. Over 50. And now okay. she might be, uh, I think her BMI might be mid-30s now. Now oh. this is, you know, before pandemic, we are talking about mm. now post-pandemic, right? At some point of time, I think it was in 2022, beginning of 2022 or late 2021, she decided to go through bariatric surgery. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, a choice that she made. And that's completely wonderful and honorable. And so... But before she went for bariatric surgery, the only diabetes medication that she was taking was metformin. Wow. And now she's off metformin, right? So this is a remission case, right? right. This is somebody who's had diabetes for over a decade, has already mm-hmm. been on insulin, multiple mm-hmm. shots, not even like insulin daily, once daily, Yeah. who's already off all the other medications and is only on metformin. And mm-hmm. now is off of metformin. I think her last A1C was in the high fours. High fours. Wow. What was the highest for her for A1C? When she saw me, I mean, the reason she came to me was because she had called me. She actually used to see my colleague. And Uh she called me after Halloween because the sugars were running in the 300s or 400s. And, you know, she had called me after hours, but I'm like, okay, so what are you eating? And she's like, I have a lot of Halloween candy left over. So I am... uh, eating that and she's so going to eat it until up, the next halloween <laughs> yeah so she ended up seeing me when her sugars were and so i brought her in urgently this was an yeah. urgent sort of a consult right so her sugars must have been in the you know with 300s and 400s even c's are typically higher than 9.5 or 10 easy yeah so yeah this is uh one of the fantastic story i mean she's a you know obviously she's a mind-blowing story but there are so many other stories which are less dramatic but, you know, patients stop using insulin sometimes. And yeah. in many cases, they are able to come off of very expensive medications. Yeah. So, Dr. Zhu, this is a fact in uh, the modern America yeah. that many diabetic patients choose an employer, choose an employment based on the healthcare insurance plan they will get at that employer, right? So they don't choose their position, their job position, because that's their dream job. Mm. But that's the job that really gives them meaning. They only choose that job because they have the best insurance plan. This is the reality for most of my patients, right? So You know know what's funny? I just interviewed someone from the UK, and they have a public health system there that's Mm -hmm. socialized medicine. You could have an accident, you can have an operation, walk out without having a bill. 
And to add to your point, that's the issue is that people have to find jobs based off of their insurance. And sometimes people pick partners because they have good insurance. You know, this is really sobering, you know, types of ways that we're going about life. But I do want to uh, comment on what you just said before. Two things you mentioned was share medical appointment, which is basically you're in a classroom, peer-to-peer interaction. That's Mm -hmm. number one. Number two, you know, there was cooking involved in this medical appointment. I mean, how many medical appointments can you say, you know, there's cooking involved and you're there with your peers. So you don't, a part of it is that you don't feel alone and you feel like this is, you're not the only one that's climbing this insurmountable mountain. Exactly. Yeah. No, this is, uh, you know, many patients will say that this is the only appointment that they actually look forward to going to, right? Mm. They, uh, in fact, when we did our shared medical appointments virtually during the pandemic, you know, we had a lot of seniors. There was a time when only seniors were showing up to these Zoom sessions or these, you know, epic electronic video sessions, because this was one of the only social interactions that they were perhaps having Mm. that was adding, you know, meaning and joy to Mm. their otherwise pandemic life, you know. Yeah. And when the Surgeon General, you know, recently they brought out, you know, the Department of Health and Human Services, they have published an extensive 81-page scientific advisory on the pandemic of loneliness in our country. And somebody asked me, you know, how can physicians address loneliness, right? If it's the one of the biggest risk factors, it's uh, more risky than smoking 15 cigarettes a day or, you know, being obese or being sedentary. But loneliness is the bigger killer here. Mm-hmm. And it's more pervasive. More people are lonely than are smoking cigarettes or are, you know, sedentary. It's our new silent killer. It is the back, it is back the, when hypertension was the big big yeah. player on the street. Yeah, no, we are uh, actually, you know, during our grand rounds, uh, one of the things that my chair of medicine, my ex chair of medicine, asked me to do was to do, you know, what we call Schwartz rounds on loneliness among providers. Yeah. And I remember presenting my own case of loneliness and the room was, the conference room was filled. And I had, you know, brought in like articles on loneliness from NEJM and I really wanted to talk, but I could not talk. The audience would not stop talking about their loneliness. And I'm like, okay, the whole room had talked about how they felt lonely, you know, on the floors, in the office, you know, in some other patient care scenario. And this is just among, you know, healthcare professionals. But anyhow, one of the interventions, the reason I'm talking about loneliness is one of the interventions that we can do as physicians, perhaps is a shared medical appointment. Mm-hmm. You know, because if we talk to a, a patient, it's still a physician-patient dynamic, right? It's still a power differential. Yeah. But when a patient talks with a patient, I remember there was a patient case a scenario where, you know, one of my patients, she was struggling with uh, homelessness and alcoholism. Mm. And then one of my other patients came to her rescue and told her, you know what, I have done this a decade ago and I have been able to do this, this and this. And she gave her the resources uh, in that session. And so, you know, here is this patient who sees another patient who has dealt with that and they are exchanging resources, which sometimes, you know, as a physician, I may not know. I may refer her to social worker. She may not be able to schedule a meeting with social worker. You know, there is many sort of avenues for loss and translation of therapy, right? Yeah. But one of the things we can do as providers is maybe create an environment where people will feel less lonely and less yeah. threatened. 
more welcoming, more accommodating, you know, more accommodating. And, you know, it gets us part of the conversation. It gets us involved in the conversation because we're not super versed in terms of how to be like this. We're more like this and Mm -hmm. like this. And so when we're part of the conversation, when the patient is part of the conversation and they know that, oh, their, you know, their peers are also part of it. It gets them feeling like, okay, I think I can make change. I can be a contributing factor to my own wellness and healthcare. Mm -hmm. Shifting gears a little bit, you know, what is, um, let's talk about remission. You know, we Mm -hmm. talked about, you know, lifestyle medicine. We talked about the pillars. We went over on how to apply it, share medical appointments involving, you know, culinary medicine um, into this. So let's talk about remission. What does that mean? What is the definition of remission for diabetes? Mm -hmm. And what does that involve? Because we know that diabetes is a multidisciplinary uh, team-based approach and involves a lot of different players, not just yourself at the helm, but so much. But when we're talking about lifestyle medicine, what does that mean in terms of diabetes remission? Yeah, that's uh, all the craze now. You know, I remember we created the uh, expert consensus statement from the American College of Lifestyle Medicine on diabetes remission. You know, when I say diabetes, it's type 2 diabetes remission, which is 95% of all diabetes, really. So remission essentially is defined. Remission, you know, it's kind of like putting that disease on a little bit of a back burner. We hesitate to use the word reversal because, you know, reversal would imply that the pathology has completely gone away uh, and it's not as scientific. Remission is something that we have data on, evidence on. And now through, you know, multiple randomized clinical trials uh, worldwide, not just here in the US. In fact, most of the work actually comes from Diabetes UK, Mm-hmm. but also other places, including the Middle East, etc. we found out that uh, lifestyle interventions, intensive, you know, you have to dose the lifestyle appropriately. If uh, somebody has significant pathology, you have to give them significant dosed lifestyle intervention, can actually take the diabetes away. So that's technically defined as maintaining a hemoglobin A1C of less than 6.5%, which is the official, you know, criterion, the American Diabetes Association criterion for diagnosis of diabetes for at least six months Mm. off of any medication that is used specifically for the purpose of controlling glucose. And that A1C does not have to be done by a blood test. You know, you can actually wear a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor that can also give us an estimated A1C. So six months and less than 6.5% ideally off all medications. And it's not a new concept, actually. It had been uh, around, you know, back when I was a trainee, two decades ago, the prevailing paradigm was, you know, diabetes is uh, irreversible. It is an inexorably progressive condition. Once you get it, it's a relentless march downhill from there, right? In fact, you know, if as an endocrinologist, I'm doing my job well, I'll keep you alive long enough for you to be able to look forward to this day of starting insulin, right? Mm-hmm. That was a paradigm when I was a trainee. That was something to look forward to. <laughs> Delay me until I get, you know, these shots. <laughs> and then, you know, obviously bariatric surgery came along. And, you know, lo and behold, people who had type 2 diabetes for um, a decade or so were able to stop needing diabetes medications, right? So that's when remission actually became a thing. Mm. And now 
we know, you know, now, of course, there are pharmacotherapy options where people can use, you know, weight loss medications, etc., to lose significant amount of weight to go on remission, right? But of course, lifestyle medicine is the, the absolute, you know, sort of the substantial, the cardinal approach to diabetes remission. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, not, not to say to everyone, go get, you know, bariatric surgery, because there's also, you know, ill effects and side effects and complications, you know, because it is surgery at the end of the day. And I'm glad that you pointed out your first case study about your patient, because that's actually what most, you know, preoperative care would look like. They would yeah. want you to make substantial lifestyle changes because at the end of the day, if you're not making these changes, whether you have the surgery or not, it's not going to make a difference. There's been a lot of reoccurrence rates in terms yeah. of getting back that weight yeah. and, you know, steep disease condition. So, so Mahima, this is great. I definitely want to kind of go towards, you know, closing out. And for those that are listening, for those that are struggling with, you know, diabetes that knows of someone that's struggling with diabetes, you know, you're in Connecticut, right? Mm -hmm. And so what is it, would you say would be the best thing for patients that are listening to kind of be, let's just say they want to be more proactive than mm -hmm. reactive to say, Dr. Mahima, you know, I don't want to be on these medications forever. What types of questions should they be asking of themselves, whether mm -hmm. to take their health by their own reins, or if they're going to their primary care physician or specialist, what can they ask, you know, they do in terms of their roadmap? You know, what can I change? What kind of um, other therapies I need to seek out? You know, where can I find a lifestyle mm -hmm. medicine endocrinologist? Yeah. So that's a, you know, wonderful question. So number one thing that a patient who has diabetes and they are looking to put it in remission, you know, basically live without diabetes, not live with diabetes. And that's a noble goal, really. Uh, and there are studies that show that, uh, you know, people who have type 2 diabetes, particularly in the beginning, in the first six to eight years of type 2 diabetes, a lot of this can actually go in remission and stay in remission. The first resource I would recommend they should lay out is their support team. Who are there? Who who has got their back? You know, their own personal sort of family support, and then their professional support, which includes mm. their physician or provider or educators or, you know, any other number of kind of their professional support team. And you can find lifestyle medicine certified providers on the lifestylemedicine.org directory. If you just you know Google uh, lifestyle medicine board certified uh, providers, you can find them in your vicinity by your zip code. And nowadays, uh, you know, it's becoming sought after thing. In fact, uh, American College of Lifestyle Medicine is even bringing out a certification program for remission of type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. So there will be providers who are actually certified in how to help patients remit their type 2 diabetes. They've actually received a certain number of hours of credentialing to do that. And they know how to intensively dose that therapeutic lifestyle therapy, right? So they can look it all up on Google. Number one, that's their primary, you know, task to find out exactly what support they are lining it up and, you know, just jot down, this is my team because mm -hmm. we can't do it alone. Remember, you know, wellness begins with we, we, mm -hmm. uh, W-E. So they will uh, want to do that. And then, you know, after that, the rest of the pieces are relatively, you know, I think most patients know what it is. You know, it's the six pillars. It's, you know, what works for your life. And you're the only ex person, you, you are the expert in your life. You know what kind of a diet program will work for you, whether that's 
100% whole food plant-based or is that, you know, a Mediterranean style of uh, diet with some, you know, fish in there? Uh, what will work for your family, your kids, if you have, or any other, you know, family members that are with you and your own, you know, work hours, etc. So making sure you have a plan in terms of your, not, your, not just your diet, if it's your sleep, that's the problem. You know, I've had several patients who were doing night shifts or were doing third shifts who have benefited from fixing their sleep schedules. That's how they got their diabetes in remission. Mm -hmm. So, you know, identifying what it is that is the biggest chunk of the, you know, lifestyle problem that will give you the most dividends. For some, it's stress management. You know, they might find that once the stress thing comes in, their stress response is completely, you know, sort of it counterproduces what they have already lined up. So they may have 100 items on their journal and they will not achieve anything because the stress gets to them. And in that case, they have to, you know, figure out how can they modify their stress response because it's not the stress. There will always be stress. But how do we respond to the stress that's there? So the rest of the pieces are, in, in my opinion, they are, you know, people know what they need to do, but they have to have their support. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the biggest highlight, you know, from your story was, you know, if you didn't have that support, you know, would you have ended up here at this moment? Right. So it's huge, huge, huge. And, you know, definitely people that are watching, you know, don't make these decisions lightly or by yourself. Definitely consult your primary care, your specialists, you know, make sure you ask your medical professionals on how to get started. So Dr. Mahima, thank you so, so much for taking out the time. One last question before I let you go is this podcast is all about, you know, living and breathing and thriving at the end of the day. What are three things that you do for yourself? We talk about self-care, right? Um, Mm -hmm. That you do in your own routines that help you thrive, help you get up out of bed every morning, helps to feel that fire, helps you to keep pushing. What are those three things that you can share with us? Okay, (laughs) this is so... Uh, interesting. I have improved over time. And I have my um, lifestyle medicine fraternity, you know, people like yourself, our, you know, board of directors team, our other lifestyle medicine providers that I'm uh, in touch with, you know, we are doing this move in May challenge, where we are, you know, keeping each other accountable to exercise and get a certain number of, you know, metabolic equivalents of exercise each week, right steps or whatever. So I feel like, uh, you know, for me, the the engagement with others, I really learn from others. I'm a social learner. So I have learned from you. I've learned from Dr. Freire's, Susan Venegas, all of my lifestyle medicine folks. That's my number one self-care, to connect, mm-hmm. to connect with people who inspire me at a very, you know, like at a very human level. Mm-hmm. I, you know, feel like I need to love and to belong. We all long to belong. And this is a place where I belong. I feel like every every time I look forward to going to lifestyle medicine conferences and meet my kin, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's not just I'm meeting my colleagues. It feels like I'm meeting, you know, real friends, like true friends. So number one is connect. And then, you know, doing fun things, making it fun. I love to experiment with ther- foods. I know you're a culinary medicine expert. So I love cooking and coming up with novel recipes. You know, like yesterday I made a teff porridge. Yeah, with mangoes or blueberries or stuff. So I love to uh, have fun. That's the second one. You know, make it fun. If you're having 
you know, foods that are healthy, making them tasty is kind of a fun thing to do. You know, how can you make uh, broccoli tasty? That's a fun thing to figure out, innovate. Mm-hmm. So that's the second thing that I feel I um, helps me kind of thrive. And I think uh, the third thing is over time, I have learned how important it is to have, you know, the, the rest and repair and regenerate part of uh, the equation. Because, you know, we're always move, move, move and go, go, go. Mm-hmm. But to be able to, you know, kind of activate the parasympathetic nervous system and, you know, get the seven to eight hours of sleep. And sleep was my biggest challenge, you know, when I mm-hmm. talked about the preterm birth and a lot of uh, the problems that I had in my earlier life, I think a lot of them were when I wouldn't sleep very good, maybe sleep barely two or four hours at night uh, for, you know, a stretch. So understanding the vital role of, you know, breathing. Mm. reading uh, you know restorative things at night basically dimming the lights down not have you know bright lights up in the evening keeping my phone out of my bedroom which again something my husband inspired me to do those are also important things you know that part where you're not always move 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 you know when the evening comes start shutting down you know set the stage for this is the time when relaxation should kick in and I have taken that more seriously over the last uh, maybe one year or more and that I think is helping me now. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Dr. Mahima, again, thank you so much for, you know, your experience, your expertise, your light bulb moments. I love the mod, the stories, definitely a pioneer. Please continue to do the great, amazing work that you do. And, you know, just a shining example. I can't wait to see you in Denver later this year. So (laughs) I have to thank you, Dr. Zhu. You are a pioneer. You inspire me. It has been my utmost honor to be connected with you through the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. I'm very, you know, humbled and uh, really motivated by all the work that you have done and all the, you know, sunshine that you bring to the world. And I want you to keep going for me, for <laughs> your fraternity, for your patience, and for all the lives that you touch. So I uh, appreciate you. that. That means very, 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 very much beyond words. So I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Again, thank you so much. Guys, thank you so much for watching another episode. If you like this, please like, comment, and subscribe. And if you feel like this is a benefit for someone else, please let them know. Until then, please say goodbye to Dr. Mahima. Hey guys, we hope you enjoy that episode. If you like that, please like, comment, and subscribe. And uh, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, and anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. And if you felt that this was a benefit for someone else, please let them know. And also remember that the first five seasons, 150 episodes, now can be seen and heard on our new The Chef Doc app. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating and we greatly appreciate it. So, and we'll see you on the next one. 